All right, let's roll. So welcome everybody and I have a very young and accomplished person here who has managed to build a venture capital franchise in 10 years from starting very small to now managing north of 6 billion, starting it in his mid twenties. It's Drew Oting, co-founder of 8VC along with Joe Lonsdale. Drew, super happy to have you here with us. Where does it find you this session today? I'm in Austin, Texas, which is the new headquarters. We moved here last summer after being in the Bay Area for just under 10 years. And we still have a large office in San Francisco. About half our, our team is there, but the other half is here and we're very excited about Bay Area. Yeah. And before we get to the Austin part and what the move entailed, I want to talk about your time in San Francisco, especially during the pandemic. In the midst of the pandemic, there was a Wall Street article about what you and your roommate were doing. It was quite impressive. First of all, you have some interesting hobbies like drinking shots of apple cider vinegar for breakfast. But after that, in your apartment in Russian Hill, you got a text message from someone who was looking for PPE equipment and you were hacking together supply really in an impressive and quick turnaround way. You heard from a small logistics company that had excess supply because they were supplying the luxury industry. And then you texted a classmate who's, I think at that point, working for the Iowa Senator who exactly needed this PPE equipment. You were hands-on. You were not like the rest of us watching from afar, just reading the news, but you were actually shifting into full gear as everybody else was in paralysis. So quite an impressive thing there. I don't think we were in any means the only people who were trying to help out with stuff. It definitely wasn't, you know, nearly the sacrifice and sort of effort that a lot of millions, tens of millions of people, you know, across the United States were going through. But basically kind of like you outlined, you know, in April of 2020, we were pretty aware of what was happening, that there were going to be potential issues. And, you know, this, and then this PPE sort of shortage came about and just basically through the random types of things that VCs do, right? Most of what we do is we spend time connecting people and learning about other people who have great expertise and stuff. And, and then hopefully we're a bit of a router and kind of get them all together. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to hear about just, you know, people who had PV, uh, and it was random. It started with being, you know, a couple of our portfolio companies, you know, had sort of deep expertise on supply chains in China, primarily where there actually was a lot of production of PPE, but then everyone started coming out of the work around PPE. And so, you know, along with Jake Medwell, who's another one of the partners at APC, and then also a friend of ours, Robin Chan, kind of started thinking about how we could solve this problem. And we knew kind of from the beginning, you know, we didn't want to make money on this. It wasn't a business thing. It was, it was, you know, at the time we felt like it was an important thing to do, you know, as folks that were fortunate to be able to keep doing what we were doing through the pandemic, trying to help out. And, but they were basically became obvious. There was a whole network of new entrants into PPE that existed. And, and, and it was both highly frustrating. And I think in some ways it was not maybe the most ethical thing that happened, but at the same time, I started, we started looking at it like we would in our day jobs as venture capitalists and looking and saying, okay, well, how does this market work? How can we get connected into it? How can we start putting together the pieces so that we can actually get these small hospitals and states that didn't necessarily have massive stores of PPE, but also didn't have relationships. Basically the pandemic took a procurement process, which normally had a very slow paced process, one driven by hospitals. So I'm a procured person in the local hospital. I'm going to call my rep at McKesson or Cardinal or Medline. I'm going to get my, make my PPE order. I'm going to pay them on, you know, probably net 
30 or net 60 terms. It's going to show up FedEx. It's going to be great, right? Pretty standard sleepy part of the overall hospital, right? It's not like as crazy as the ER or the other stuff, but all that changed overnight. And that person who's doing procurement, he's not necessarily, you know, an expert on how to find local brokers and, you know, interface with, you know, Mandarin speaking folks overseas, you know, working weird hours and dealing with paying up front, taking risk, all those things are totally foreign. So what we try to do is we set up Operation Mass, basically step in there and help on the sourcing side, do as much as we could on trying to help vet whether the stuff was legitimate or not, but then also help them understand the new world they were living in, which was they needed to take risk. They needed to be able to wire someone money and realize that they might not get the product they wanted or it might be fake, but that was the only way they were going to get anything. There was no savior coming in the form of, you know, one of the large PPE providers, at least over the short term. Then over time, what we realized was that there was a lot of hoarding happening. FEMA uh, and, and the federal government started figuring out how to buy in bulk. They started putting people on the ground and we started helping them, you know, the U.S. government from a federal perspective, start connecting with the networks that we had built through it. And then luckily the problem had passed. It was a very interesting experience and, you know, hopefully we were able to do a little bit to alleviate some of the pressures on these mostly local hospitals and then state governments like Iowa, where I'm from originally, where they weren't getting the attention that maybe bigger states or bigger hospitals were. Love it. It's such a beautiful story. And I think in, in many ways, it's emblematic of the mantra that you have at HBC, which is if it's broken, fix it. This whole spirit of actually doing something, not just being capital allocators, passive capital allocators but always getting your hands dirty, coding something, working on something, obviously with a firm having a very entrepreneurial DNA with Joe being the founder of these breakout companies. But I think it really goes through the entire organization that you're a hands-on, very young and dynamic team that also builds credibility with entrepreneurs by being hands-on and actually doing stuff when they see there's opportunity. And in this case, having this sprint in the midst of the paralysis of the pandemic, it's a really great story. This brings me to the next thing you did during the pandemic, which is investing in a company that seemed to be born out of the pandemic, which is a company called Resilience, where ATVC led the Series B, a pretty substantial Series B, which I think for other companies, you would typically call it a Series F, but it goes along with the vision and mission of that company. If I understand it correctly, it wants to be the AWS for the pharmaceutical industry, basically the full stack pharmaceutical company from discovery to manufacturing as the pandemic has exposed these gaps in the manufacturing and supply chain. You are leading this deal from the HPC side. You're a founding board member. Maybe run us a little bit through what this company yeah. is achieving and how it came about. Yeah. So just. To clarify, we co-founded Resilience actually, so from kind of day zero, along with Bob Nelson at Arch, and obviously we're, we're financial investors in that business as well. And so Resilience very much dovetails off of the experience we had with Operation Mass in that the big realization we had around PB was that the reason why the United States was so behind was primarily due to where the means of production were owned and where they were not owned like from a financial perspective, who is the equity owned in terms of who actually physically controls them. And so one of the most impressive things, the Chinese manufacturing industry was how quickly sort of non-healthcare manufacturers pivoted into being able to, in a very sophisticated way, manufacture PPE. One 
that I worked closely with. It's a company called BYD, which is one of the manufacturer electron, electric trucks. And Warren Buffett owns nine or 10% of it. And, you know, was a great business beforehand, but they actually were able to become one of, if not the world's largest mass manufacturers over a matter of months. And really the big issue for them was getting regulatory approval in the United States, more so than actual manufacturing. So I started thinking about that. I was like, why? It's amazing. You know, it's company was able to do that. And they had all the, you know, all these companies were able to kind of take their manufacturing prowess and that there was a generalization there that they were able to apply. And obviously we didn't have that in the United States and started thinking about, okay, beyond PPE, because the PPE problem was actually solved quite quickly. And a lot of it was due to just unprecedented demand. And to be honest with you, a lot of hoarding by both governments and hospitals versus there actual being, you know, a critical shortage for as long as there was, there was a shortage for a while, but a lot of it had to do with hoarding. Started thinking, where is there actual more structural problems within or vulnerabilities for us as the United States, but also just where is there maybe a, a lot of concentration in one area. And we were thinking also about what was next with the pandemic. And it was obviously vaccines, that the biomanufacturing infrastructure in the United States had really not been invested in or focused on uh, in decades. So the vast majority of innovation in biotechnology happens, you know, in the United States, the UK, Canada, and, and then now increasingly in China, but it's fairly concentrated yet. The manufacturing actually occurs in different places. And if, if you see a huge part of what we do is investing in what we call bio-IT, but really that's the intersection of computational science and biology. So things like cell therapy, gene therapy, and then the infrastructure around those to manufacture them. And so it's something we think a lot about. And a lot of our companies face a lot of problems as they think about planning their manufacturing because these next generation medicines, mRNA is now the example everyone knows about, which no one knew about in 2019, but cell and gene therapies have been, you know, I think something that people have been appreciating have potential to have huge impact, right? This is the ability to actually make uh, changes to our genetics in order to fix diseases or with the case of cell therapies, make uh, special engineered cells that can do things in the body and have magnitude sort of more efficacy and safety than using chemicals or biologics. But the manufacturing infrastructure for these drugs is, first of all, it's very nascent. It's, it's hasn't really been developed. It's right now still very much one-off processes. There's been very little standardization or organization. But secondly, it's already being sort of moved overseas, or at least it had been up until last year. And we felt that that was not, wasn't good for society. It wasn't good for our companies and it wasn't good really for competitiveness in the world for, for the United States. And so we started resilience kind of under this sort of two pronged thesis. One, that there would be massive demand for manufacturing capacity for these next generation therapeutics or advanced biologics, as we call them in the United States. And secondly, that investing in R&D and taking real scientific and engineering risk in that company in order to change the manufacturing paradigms and processes within each one of those therapeutic areas would ultimately yield the ability to capture a platform similar to the way AWS has done with compute, similar to the way that Taiwan Semiconductor has done with semiconductors and that you could build this abstraction layer on top of the manufacturing portion of these next generation therapies. To be clear, we are not a therapeutics company in that we don't go and try to develop our own hypotheses, validate our own pathways, do our own research, and then, and then make the drug. We're not, that would be competitive with our customers. 
what we do is we want to build the best infrastructure so that whether you're a researcher who wants a very small amount of a product or whether you are a massive farmer wanting to produce, you know, millions of doses, that we can provide you the best infrastructure at the lowest cost and the fastest turnaround time to produce those products. That's super exciting. It is a hard problem to fix. And as a result of this, also a very capital intensive one, especially in the pharmaceutical manufacturing side, there is this, as you, I think, alluded to also this geopolitical aspect to it as also the pandemic showed us, right? Your firm is going with high conviction into some of these opportunities, also deploying quite substantial amounts at an early stage because you're a problems first company or investor. Maybe moving a little bit to, to you as a person and your background, and I listened to a couple of other podcasts you've been on. So I found it quite refreshing that you are not having this typical venture capital attitude that venture is more of an art than a science, but you, you actually have a pretty down to earth approach to it, comparing it to the private equity side as well. You studied at Claremont McKenna, which is one of the leading liberal arts colleges in the US, where two notable alumni are the founders of KKR, Henry Kravis and George Roberts. And so I think it's probably a, a mandatory book to read Barbarians at the Gate in the first semester, whatever you study there. A book that also you read and that shaped you. And now you're sitting on a board with Henry Kravis, I think at Rubicon. And you have this first row exposure to that person who is the hero to many people who want to be in private equity. But to bring it back, you have this attitude that venture is similar to what private equity is doing, which we all know, but very few people in venture like to admit it, that you are taking money from LPs and you're sitting between those super tankers of LPs and those speedboats of startups and that you are capital allocators. And I, I think it's a pretty down to earth, pragmatic way of looking at it. Yeah. I'd say, first of all, I, I have a ton of respect for Mr. Travis and Roberts. They've obviously been not only really successful in finance, but also incredibly huge supporters of Clarence McKenna when I went and had scholarships that I'm sure that they had donated to. And also, you know, in supporting business, just to clarify, I, I'm an advisor. And so on the advisory board, I'm not on the board, but obviously, you know, I've been fortunate to be involved in a lot of companies for them and, and other mentors of mine who built some of the other private, big private equity firms of certain. And I think this has actually has changed a bit as venture has expanded so much. So those comments may be a little bit antiquated at this point, but it always bothered me a little bit that venture kind of wanted to pretend that it was sort of special in some way from private equity. Not to say that it's not different. I mean, it, it is, right? I mean. We in venture capital are minority investors almost by default. And so it's very different to own 10, 20, maybe 30% of a company, knowing also that you're going to be probably diluted by other investors coming in than it is to own hundred percent of it. Right. And it's different in almost all practical realities. The thing that's not different though is the business model, right? So like still raise money from other people and we invest it in stuff. We're paid a management fee and we're paid to promote. And fundamentally, that is the business that you could argue that Kravis and Roberts and, and other people like them invented. I mean, I've heard the story about why 2 and 20 was chosen is that he's relatively arbitrary, right? So that business model 
originated there. And I think a lot of people forget that those people were unbelievable entrepreneurs. Like no one wanted to go into private equity or even really investment banking in the eighties. It was not the smartest people at Harvard business school, you know, the most polished pedigree people that were going into what we think is finance today. Back then they probably wanted to go work at, you know, GE or Disney or something like that. Right. You know, mentioned I, I went to Mullish for about two months. So I'm very fortunate to have worked there and met an incredible group of people to talk about later that were there. I got great training and then I went and sort of like, you know, I think unfortunately wasted people's time and then, and then left um, to go work with my business partner, Joe's as chief of staff. But I, I think Mollus is an incredible company. And I also think Ken Mollus is an incredible entrepreneur. And I think a lot of people don't give these people credit, you know, DLJ, where a lot of these folks came from at Drexel Burnage before, I mean, these, if you look at the networks of people. And what they went on to build is pretty incredible. And they were running huge businesses at very young ages. So there was no like, it's not like an investment bank now where you got like, you know, 15 different levels of folks there. That's what they built, right? They built that institution. I mean, back then they were working a hundred plus hours a week, but it was a very different thing. It was like wild west. I mean, it's obviously great examples of how that's changed. Probably in some ways for the better, some ways for the worse. But anyway, part of it is just. I like the stories of how industries have been built. And I think both Wall Street on the banking side and then, you know, the private equity side, which they really worked hand in hand in, in building. I just think it's filled with entrepreneurial stories and with entrepreneurs. And I think it still is. And so when VCs try to like separate themselves out, it bothers me a little bit because I'm like, you're supposed to be obsessed with entrepreneurship. Why don't you pay attention to what's going on over here? Right? Yes, of course. Like, Private equity is different, but your business model is not different. And the entrepreneurial stories are interesting. And I think they're worth sort of respecting and, and paying attention to. So my comments before have been about that. I think it is changing though a bit, because I think if you look at what's happening right now in venture capital, there's a bifurcation happening. There are groups that are doubling down on the venture part of venture capital, the early stage. Doesn't mean that they're not taking a wider aperture, but it's about being in the early stage, about being early, about taking lots of risk. And then there's folks that are doubling down on the capital side and are, and I think right now are building the next large asset management groups. And I have a huge amount of respect for the folks who both. We at APC have decided to focus on the early stage. Doesn't mean that we're not managing, you know, a significant amount of capital, but it means we're focusing on entrepreneurial energy, you know, focusing on building companies. We've been building kind of six, seven companies a year internally at APC, like resilience, which we talked about. We're going to be doing more of that. But then some of our peers, you know, Hamanta General Catalyst and obviously the folks at Andreessen have raised tremendous amounts of money. And I think in hiring really incredible people, investing in growth, in trying to build out real platforms and expanding asset classes as well. And I have a huge amount of respect for that because again, it's an entrepreneurial story. And so I do think venture capital is embracing some of the aspects of private equity and maybe that's by necessity because of competition from those larger groups coming down. But I think it's also because the opportunity set is there to do that. And there's really ambitious people who are interested in, in being more than just venture capitalists and are really interested in, in building the next gen as we platforms. Absolutely. I think it's so interesting. Just 15 years ago, Andreessen Horowitz sending around the first deck, you know, and nobody believed in them. And now. A16Z is considered to be the new Sequoia and everybody's treating them like they're this long-standing institution, but they haven't been around for that long. If you look back and no, I think the first fund was a 2009 vintage and the same with KKR, you know, 
everybody thinks this is, this is like set in stone named partners, but it's a 30 year, 30 year franchise and they've built it from the ground up. So it's always great to look back in history and, and think about, you know, there was always a day one for these firms. And when it comes to building a legacy and a franchise, let's talk about 8VC and it's been an incredible journey so far. I mean, you started out originally in 2012 as Formation 8 with the predecessor fund. When you joined, you were chief of staff, but then you became a co-founder of 8VC. Obviously, we, we talked about your co-founder, Joe Lonsdale. He's made a name for himself as a co-founder of Palantir, but he's done incredible other things like the fintech Adapar, which is, if I understand it correctly, it's pooling the services of many other fund providers and being like the high net worth wealth front, if I understand it correctly, then also working on OpenGov, I think another project of his. So an incredible track record of having hands-on vision and also execution. And obviously if you have someone like this as a co-founder, it inspires you. Give us some background on how you two came together and, and how this all yeah, the reality in the first place. Yeah, I've been fortunate to to work with Joe basically my entire career, other than yeah, other than a, a few months at Molus. Uh, so basically, I joined as his chief of staff when we were still the CEO of Adapar. And so Adapar is it's basically a SaaS company focused on the wealth management industry. And so unlike a lot of Silicon Valley, it was focused on tools for individual wealth management, the wealth funds of the world. This was focused on managing the vast majority of assets which are still managed by family offices, independent RAAs, and now Adapar's work with large banks and their private wealth groups. And so I think that Adapar is a very interesting company to come after Palantir, where Joe was a co-founder and, and built that up for a number of years before leaving to start Adapar. And they really borrowed a lot of the same learnings, which was that there were these opportunities to build data integration and then normalize data around an ontology or a schema, and then basically functionalize that through application level application software. And that you could purpose build that for an industry. If you did that, then you'd be positioned as a potential platform. And so the insight that I think Joe had, and you know, that a few other folks had that kind of came out of that PayPal world was that there was going to be massive change that happened inside of large enterprises because of software, data science, et cetera, but that you wouldn't see just through pure SaaS, you wouldn't see the magnitude, you know, $100 billion plus magnitude outcomes like a Facebook or whatever until you had platforms. And so this movement from thinking about software as like a tool that you buy and it does this thing and that's a good business, but really the only way you could massively expand that is if you you know, bought tons of tools and you became like an SAP or an Oracle or something instead saying, well, you know, if you had these tools in the cloud and if you owned like the workflow and you thought more about it as owning this user, right. Owning their entire workflow through the day, same way you want to own them on Facebook, you know, in their personal lives, you want to own their workflow that you would have the potential to build a Facebook esque or, you know, Amazon, Google esque platform within the enterprise. And so that was the real, that was the real idea of that part. And the platform aspect is actually really cool because it's just starting to now like come online. So it maybe takes a little bit longer than you think. You got to build the pipes and the pipes mean you got to sell a lot of software, but it's really cool because Anapart has like trillions of dollars of assets that are on the platform. Doesn't mean that we're the wealth manager for them, right? We're empowering their wealth manager to 
you know, but we own all the reporting and integrations and all that kind of stuff. And then what's really cool is now they're actually offering products and services through that onto that asset base. So now you can imagine that someone might come up with a really good, you know, accounting uh, or billing module or tax module for our for independent RAAs that just layers on, right? Or they might come up some might come up with a really good sort of tech enabled tax deferral strategy. And instead of having to pick up the phone and call up that person's REA and try to pitch them on it, you could just deploy it. And so I, me as the REA, I can get right there and I can actually layer it on them, you know, virtually onto my client's uh, portfolio and see, does that make sense for me or not, right? The power of, of owning that workflow and then owning the data model is that you can do those types of things and it has to reduce friction. And so there, you know, the marketplace and Adapart is just starting to roll out. I heard, I don't know if you know, co-founder of The Hustle or even solo founder, and he, he just sold it to HubSpot for, I think, 30, 50 million. And then basically he got a login from his investment advisor at Morgan Stanley. It looked also antiquated and broken to sort of just to compare certain ETFs. And then he was asking around, what's a better solution there? And then someone told him about edit par, but then they told him, yeah, you need to have more money than you, even with this first exit. He doesn't, he just needs to tell his wealth manager that they need to sign up. And so Adipar does not charge based off of the, you know, the, the, they don't have any limitations around the wealth, but obviously there are sort of implicit requirements to make it an economic purchase for the RAA or the wealth manager who might be treating those clients. There are folks that run family offices that they care a lot about the data, they care a lot about the software. They might be willing to invest in Anapar at a earlier stage than in a, you know, a firm that, that's farther flung. So he should put some pressure on his wealth manager to, yeah. you know, buy. or if he needs one that, you know, that he already uses Anapar, I got some like introduced to it. But anyway, so Anapar was this incredible, and then Joe had been working on starting a, a venture capital business with a couple folks that are former business partners. And so when I met Joe, I met him through a friend of mine, with Paulus. He was a friend of mine from college at Claremont. He made the introduction to Joe, which obviously is the biggest introduction that I've ever gotten. And so obviously I'm forever grateful for that. And Joe wanted to shoot the staff. He wanted Clint to get to shoot staff. Clint would have been great, but Clint wanted to go start a company. So I think, you know, I was maybe the fill-in for that. So he could go do that. And we started working together. And very soon after, Joe realized he, he was going to replace himself as CEO of Anapark and, and focus full-time on building out. But the time was called Formation 8 with two of our foreign business partners. And so we did two funds under Formation 8. You know, I think we were really lucky to get to invest in a bunch of great companies and really kind of start learning how venture capital worked. Kind of wild to think about now that first fund, I think at least a few thousand meetings trying to pitch for money. There were like 280 investors in it or something. So it was $450 million fund. Yeah, I was going to ask because it's rock hard for a first time fund to raise such a large fund. Even if you have this entrepreneurial background, it's super hard because people want to see track record. They want to see TVPI, DPI, oh, yeah. RVPI, all the good stuff. You know, I mean, this is the biggest thing I've learned from Joe. I mean, first off, Joseph, he's, he's unbelievably smart. He's unbelievably, you know, strategic and he's done a lot of great. Now, obviously, you know, Palantir's a huge company. But, you know, at the time, Palantir was a very well-known company and, and he was very well-respected. But... There's probably not anyone in Silicon Valley who's had the level of success that Joe has who works smart. Maybe there's one or two that could like get close, but I mean, that first fund is a prime example. Like I'll never forget when he, he kind of like looked at me and he was like, I think I'm going to have to like, you know, go raise the rest of this fund. Cause we were fortunate to have a couple of families that were of our foreign business partners that had put in, you know, the first kind of 
chunk, but we saw a long way to go. I was just carrying his bags around, but to watch, like we basically just went on a sprint around the world, crazy. seven days a week. And, and the other thing that I realized was like, a lot of people are too proud or, or they have a construct in their head of like, oh, I'm going to raise a fund. And like the minimum check size is 5 million, right? Thing I learned from Joe is like, you're an entrepreneur, you gotta get to the number. If you set a high bar for the number, we raised 448 million. Like, I mean, you're just not gonna get there if you have a $5 million minimum. And at least in, in a way you can control. But you can control raising a fund if you have enough, you know, to stand on enough energy of going and convincing a bunch of people to, to put in, you know, 500K here or a million bucks here or whatever. And a lot of those people can write much bigger checks, but they're taking a bet on you to see how you perform, right? See where you can get it done. And so I'll never forget that. And, you know, the times when I've had to raise, you know, money on my own, I always remember that because, and I always tell to people when they're going to raise their own funds is like, yes, if you're got an amazing pedigree or you are okay with a smaller fund, maybe that's not the right strategy for you. But if you have a number in mind, you want to do it, or maybe, you know, you don't have any track record or you don't have any pedigree or whatever, just like beating down the doors is the only thing in your control, really. You can't control if someone says yes or no. You can try to spend your time. So the two biggest things become, are you going to put in the reps? And then are you going to be honest with yourself uh, about who actually will say yes to you, right? Like if you just keep trying to go meet with MIT, like, you know, maybe a waste of your time, as opposed to going to meet with some folks who maybe don't have exposure to venture and are willing to take a bet on you. So that's the, that was the biggest learning experience I had was, was, was kind of, you know, being a fly in the wall for, for that first fundraise, because it was, it was just, it was a real example that everything you think, oh, this person must just be the smartest, or this person must just like always make the right decisions, or this person must have some secret playbook that Peter Thiel gave that to them or whatever. Right. There's a lot of stuff that's like sort of true in that like we could get into, but the reality is, is just like the thing I'm most struck by is like most people, and I would be honest, like my natural proclivity. Like most people don't naturally, no one naturally works as hard at the level of success that he's had the Jeff, than Joe. I've always remembered it. That's important for everyone to hear, not just for people thinking about raising a fund, but also people raising for a startup. I think it's always 100%. raising the seed is the hardest. And then basically it, it goes down exponentially after product market fit. And I mean, if you look at where capital is deployed, it's always at the growth rounds where commodity capital is piling in, preempting every round. And that's when it starts to get easy, but you have to put in the reps in the beginning to sell the vision as a first time fund. You're basically walking around with a deck. You might have an, an angel track record, but LPs don't look at it as a full-blown comparable track record for a fund. This brings me a little bit to the unique thesis, and I touched upon this earlier this, if it is broken, then let's fix it attitude that runs through the entire organization. And we've yeah. had now a couple of examples on how that plays out with you incubating, not just investing passively, but really incubating and venture building in, in a sense at the firm, but maybe you can share some more light on how that looks on a day-to-day -day basis. Yep. Yeah. So first, you know, the world is broken. Let's fix it is our mantra. And there's obviously two parts to that. They're separated by a comma. The world is broken, right? Which is a, basically a recognition that it's an anchoring in a, in a realistic view of the world and also in a, in a sort of active view of the world, which is that there are constantly opportunities, right? And there's constantly inefficiencies, but then it has this other part, which is optimistic, which is like, let's fix it. Right. And we thought about this, 
sound like it's the most uh, profound that you actually write it out, but the framework behind it has been, you know, we really try to model that. Like, it's not enough just to point out the problems in the world, right? You can go on Twitter and you can have all these smart people telling you about all the stuff that's fucked up and like, great, what are you going to do about it, right? Is it, it's not even clear it's better to point out problems unless there are going to be people who fix them. Like we may as well all live in delusion and just think everything's great unless by pointing out the problem and making us all feel, you know, upset about it, there's like going to be people who grab those problems and turn them into solutions. And so this is a, it, it is, it's an unbelievably important part of ABC because we like this realistic optimism or this optimistic view of reality is like fundamental to, it's fundamental to being a venture capital investor. It's fundamental to being an entrepreneur and building companies, but it's honestly, it's fundamental to like being a, a, per, a participant in society. It is somewhat important for there to be people who are really good at pointing out problems. That is necessary, but not sufficient. They are only valuable in that there are people who are crazy enough to grab those problems and then try to solve those problems in the face of a bunch of other people pointing out all the problems and their solution, right? And so we want to be part of the people who grab problems and try to do stuff with them. And so that's why it's our mantra. And a big part of that is that, and this is not just, you know, to fit with the mantra, but it's also because it's where we think we have core, basically comparative advantage. Right. Or what in the Coke industries sort of management framework, they would call capabilities. And it's a really great way. If people haven't read that, I would recommend it. I think that Charles Coke and the Coke industries in general are, but one is a totally misunderstood in, in this sort of common, you know, in common culture, but more importantly, you put the politics upside, they have very strong and great and applicable principles for organizational management and development. And one of these is understanding what your capabilities are. And the capabilities are basically comparative advantages, things that you do in the marketplace better than everyone else. Hopefully you did a great, but it's that you have a comparative advantage, right? So most of venture capital, we don't have a comparative advantage, right? We might have pairwise comparative advantages, or we might have, you know, it might possibly be comparative advantages, but it's not clear that they're durable and that they exist beyond maybe one person or another, right? They're not necessarily firm wide. And that's okay. Most businesses don't have any comparative advantages, so it's okay. But we believe we have a very strong capability within building. This is something that's, it wasn't like obvious like when we started, but what we noticed was we were organically attracting incredibly talented people who wanted to be a part of what we were doing. They were interested in the investing side, but they didn't want to be like professional investors forever. They wanted to start companies, but they wanted to learn about companies and potential opportunities and how to build companies from Joe and increasingly from, from the entire firm. And so in 2018, when we had sort of fully you know, figured out the transition from formation to APC and kind of hired, you know, up the, the team where we wanted it, we formalized what we call the build program. And it was a formalization of activity that had been happening since the very beginning, you know. And the goal was to return each of our investing funds through companies that we originated like ourselves. And you could call it incubated, you call it co-found, you call it bill, originate, whatever. I haven't found a term I really like all that much, but the, the idea is these companies would not exist if we weren't there. So it's not like we're trying to go and like, oh, hey, we're, we're co-founders in this deal. It's like already going to happen. It's like companies like resilience where we're talking with Bob Nelson and he's bringing in all these people and we're trying to bring in people we're talking about. It's problem in the world and it's starting 
you know, at the highest level of, you know, basically a lack of resiliency in mission critical supply chains. And we're narrowing that down to the abstraction layer on top of all advanced biologic manufacturing and then going and recruiting the team against it. And, and so it really, you know, we truly are co-founders in these businesses. And then it also, there's this other great factor, which is that as a fund, we can deploy capital against those ideas in a way that maybe would be just hard to do, you know, without it, right? It's a great like organizing function. So if you want to go, you know, do something that requires a lot of money, when you can deploy a bunch of money and maybe you partner with another great group that brings another aspect and, and they put in money and then you can partner, you can do something that, you know, might just not happen organically. And so it's a huge focus for APC. It's a place that we've invested in very heavily. You know, we've over 50 people at APC and many of them are folks that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have in a normal venture fund, at least in early stage one, unless you were kind of doing what we do, you know, engineering, design, operations, product management. And then we always have at least a few, if not more, you call them EIRs or venture partners or whatever, builders and residents, but they're basically people who are looking to start businesses and maybe they have a, some idea of where they want to start, or maybe they have, they're, they're coming in as a great engineer, a great product person with a totally open slate. And we're running them through all the playbooks that we built on the investing side, but also on the company building side to find something that works. And I think the last thing about it is unlike a lot of, we still have the investing business, right? And that has two really incredible things besides just the fact that we have a lot of knowledge in these areas. It imposes opportunity cost. So if all you do is build companies, sometimes you can kind of lose sight of like, is this a big enough idea, right? Or like, is this like actually the best use of, you know, either my time or this entrepreneur's time or whatever, or, or is there something bigger, right? You can only lose touch of it because you just so in like the making, the creating, it's cool, you know, you're hacking around and stuff. And it, a bunch of great stuff comes that way. But as a business, we have this opportunity cost, which is that we can go just deploy our dollars and time into existing companies that are already working, right? So the bar is high mm-hmm. for these, these projects. And the second thing is we, we are greedy. I mean, we're not not greedy, but we're not greedy. So like when we comes to co-founding these businesses and setting them up, like we don't take too much because the reality is we want the best people to come do these with us. And it is reality. Like if you take too much, you're not gonna get the best talent and, or they're going to renegotiate you later. And so some models in kind of the pure incubation or whatever world, I think underweight talent and they basically are overly greedy because not bad to be, to get paid what you deserve, but sort of overly greedy is really to equity. And I think what you've seen is that, you know, it just tends to either down the line, it gets renegotiated, which we see all the time as investors, because we're sometimes doing it. So we're like, listen, we're just, let's not set ourselves up to then later have to, you know, redo this. Or you just end up not getting quite the same level of talent in order there's talent churn. So we think they're very synergistic businesses, even just structurally as it relates to the mechanics of building companies. And so far, you know, the, the bar has been that we will return or at least have a shot at returning each of our funds through companies that we co-found. And obviously every fund becomes a, you know, it, it's a new, new challenge in that. But so far it seems like we'll be pretty close to meeting that bar. And, and it also meant that, you know, our investors our limited partners get exposure to companies that, you know, we have full deal control. Exactly. Yeah. They're not, they're not big, you know, I was going to say, I mean, back in the days, successful entrepreneurs would, would have these venture studios. They were called at the time, smaller versions of what you're doing with the build yep. program. I think even Yelp came with Jeremy Stoppelman came out of such a venture studio. 
but you're taking this to the next level and having adjacent to that also the main fund that's doing outside investments, minority investments and companies where you're obviously competing with other firms. But I think it, it is very compelling both for LPs to, to get this exposure as well as for you to always be operational at the same time. Maybe talking a little bit about you as a venture investor, there's this public back channel side. I liked reading this review of you. It, it gave you 10 out of 10. So it must be an entrepreneur who loves you or, or either one who loves you. One who wants, wants to suck up to you. You wrote it yourself. I don't know. But it, it reads like this. Drew is really top-notch, incredible pattern recognition, having high conviction around deploying capital, something that I noted as well when I looked at your portfolio. It's a rather concentrated but high conviction portfolio. And then post-transaction, you were a fantastic partner, always available, super strategic, and very founder-friendly. I mean, founder-friendly is such an overused term these days, but I think you can make a credible case for being founder-friendly as you, you run this build program. You are really in the trenches with the entrepreneurs. Maybe from your side, if someone would describe you in 50 years time, you know, writing a biography like for Henry Kravis, what kind of investor do you want to be remembered as? To answer that, I'm going to have to bifurcate it because I do think there's the one thing that's interesting about venture capital, especially at the early stage, and this is why I do think people call it more like an art or you know, whatever. There's something there and it's in the spirit of it. And it is that what makes you a very good venture, venture capital investor to a founder, to an entrepreneur, or to an executive, it doesn't need to be the founder, but to the person who's running a startup is not necessarily the same things that make you good as an investor. It happens to be that they're highly correlated, which is good. And they're mostly highly correlated because in venture capital, there's really a value chain. It's like see good deals, you know, pick good deals, win good deals. And then there's this fourth bucket, which is like, you know, help good deals become better deals. That bucket is like up for debate about whether that's more situational or whatever, but you can definitely help some ways, right? The see good deals part and then the win good deals part are like very much in, based off of your reputation in dealing with founders. Like our portfolio sends us somewhere, depending on the quarter, somewhere between like 30 and, and 40% of like what I would consider like the, the sort of high priority qualified deals. And so if, if your founders like you a lot and like, if they just like you a lot for whatever reason, you're going to see more deals. And then in the winning part, having great references is helpful and you know, for obvious reasons. And so that makes you a great, it makes you a great investor in venture capital. If you see a lot of great deals and you can win a lot of great deals, if you pick the wrong ones in venture, luckily, as long as you've picked some good ones, in addition to all the bad ones, you're, you're okay. Right. And in the portfolio support stuff, I think that is a part of being of what founders want from you, but it's misunderstood. Like founders want your input on stuff. If you actually know what you're talking about. And that means that you're informed on the actual companies, which actually is hard because they're changing very rapidly and or that you have either just like, you're just really, 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 really smart or something, or you actually have done it before. Right. So what I try to do is, and this is the other things I would say is I've been very, very fortunate. Like the founders who had to work with me when I was like in my early twenties. I'm sure I was like a total, yeah, I'm sure it was a lot worse to deal with now. I mean, I got hope. I would hope at least I got better. Um, and I hope that the ones that work with me in 10 years will be like, you know, will 
have a much better experience than they do now because, you know, I was in a very lucky and also very sort of strange position that like, you know, in my early 20s, I was, you know, serving on boards and I was trying to figure stuff out for his principles. And so I think it, early on, I made the mistakes of trying to like, trying to do too much, right? I mean, you know, you do this, it means so much to you, but it's not really yours, right? It's like, there's this stewardship angle that's yours, these responsibilities that are yours. And in some cases, it's your duty, it's yours, but it's not your company. And the other thing is you, you're not going through what they're going through. So, you know, you're doing a bunch of different stuff and your life feels stressful, but the reality is you're not actually like responsible in the same way as a CEO is. And so I think early on, I was, you know, I'm sure I just had like the wrong U of X, you know, too excitable, you know, yell people would be too overly pessimistic or optimistic, you know, trying to be smart, you know, all the time in, in meetings and stuff. And what I realized was like, you kind of have to try to customize a little bit more to the founder. And you also have to customize to the situation. It's also not, not being their best friend necessarily, right? I mean, there's a lot of founders that will, over time, you'll have certain founders that do become that, but even that can be a little problematic, but it is this job of stewardship, which is just different. And it also knowing when and having the relationships with other people who can solve the problems that you can't and being comfortable to pass off these relationships. And I've been also very fortunate at APC. We've been very fortunate. We have no economic or cultural incentives around needing to like own relationships. It doesn't matter where the sourcing comes from. It doesn't matter if we serve on the board. None of that matters in terms of the way people make money. And so because of that, you know, many times I'll pull in with my other partners or I'll, you know, they'll pull me in or, you know, I'll pull in an independent or whatever. And I think that that economic environment determines a lot of the way people operate, right? A lot of VCs are, are just very fearful of losing their relationships because they may not get paid in a certain way. So what I hope to answer your, your ultimate question is I hope that founders that I work with, whether it's in 50 years or if I'm able to be a VCA, Pierre Lamont I've had, and, and Tom Brew are two guys that I've been very fortunate to work with very different people, but very, they, in, in their eighties have been, you know, legendary VCs, but I worked with a lot of, you know, other folks who probably should have hung it up a little earlier, but, uh, it's all, hopefully I hang it up when the time is right. But in the future, I hope that, you know, I think the most impressive thing is when, is, is the folks who've seen so much, but yet they know like when to push and when not to push. And they're really good at understanding place a founder is and providing them the right level of support at the right time and fit this role, which is like part friend, part coach, part, you know, mentor part, a service provider, right? And it's this holistic view and it, it's very hard to describe until you see it, but it's just someone who's so fully in command and present with a founder. And that's what I think I always wish I could be more, be more present in the moment with founders on their businesses, because, you know, I think I'm pretty good at like rapid firing off a bunch of intros and trying to network for them and help them with fundraising and stuff. But sometimes you're just like, really what this person needs is they just need you to like be present. Probably what you need in all relationships, raise this relationship advice. But uh, I think that's, I think it's a big thing. And then in terms of investor, I think it's a little different, which is that the thing I respect most, there's, there's basically two like ultimate North stars, right? One is that you, that the Kravis Roberts model is figuring it's actually how to build a team of investors, which is incredibly hard, right? Like they have hundreds of people, most of whom are very highly paid, highly educated super alpha, ambitious people, not necessarily agreeable, right? And they've built an organization which can capture all that when of course they could go do their own firm, 
right? But for these people, somehow they figured out this archetype, they can do it. And I'm so impressed by that. And so that's like the idea of being this investor who translates their investing principles into the world as an organization, right? KKR, Blackstone, Tiger, I would say, is that as well. I have a ton of respect for Scott Schleifer. I mean, he's basically playing like a different game than everyone else. And like the way that he, he doesn't sort of manifest that through like massive headcount, but manifest it through strategy and then through the use of third parties, right? And I have tons of respect for that. The, the, the second sort of North Star, which is actually kind of different, are the folks that basically have removed almost all sort of friction as it relates to the way that they interact with the asset class world, like the, the surface area of investments. And they have, be, because they've removed friction, in many cases, they manage all the money themselves or with a very small team, they're able to like have the purview of like a, a macro investor and but while still having domain knowledge across tons of different things. And, you know, I think Stan Druckenmiller is, a, is a, an example of that. He's obviously, you know, it's not like he's managing just himself, but it was a relatively small amount of people. He's you know, been one of the best performing investors ever and has huge amounts of knowledge on both macro, but also individual names like a Facebook or something or Microsoft. Warren Buffett, I've never, I've never met, but I assume it has kind of a similar purview. And then there's people like Charlie Songhurst that maybe a lot of people don't really necessarily know, but he's arguably one of the most successful investors across both angel investing, venture investing, crypto, but public marketing assets as well. I, it's just him and him talking to people. And I just have so much respect for these people who've been able to abstract themselves out of like, you either, if you want to be a deal maker, right? KKR, Blackstone, it's like, you could build this machine and build like the best deal makers of all time and still do great, right? But you're scaling the trade, which is so hard to do, right? In an environment like private investing. And then the other thing I massively respect for these folks who have figured out how to sort of pull themselves out of being deal makers, almost like philosophers, right? I mean, Teal is a bit like that too, where they're just, they're able to see the world at a vantage point that other people aren't seeing it and place investments. And so, you know, I hope that I basically, I think the first order is I hope that I'm able to choose one, not get stuck in the middle trying to be both, but that doesn't work. And then secondly, obviously, you know, you know, get as far along towards those North stars as possible. A very considerate answer that I didn't expect. It gave me the full arc from public market investing, indexing and in venture with Scott Schleifer to to building a, a huge LBO franchise. I personally was very fortunate to meet Howard Marks very early on in his days with Oak Tree. He's another candidate of that. Yes. Non-consensus being right concept that he, that he had early in the days when he did start off with the distressed investing side, like not being a hurt thinker. But Drew, as we're running against the clock, I wanted to touch on Austin and the Silicon Hills where you moved to. Yeah. What's going on in Austin? If I read the press announcement, it seems like you've got more going on there than just, you know, moving the headquarter there because I think Joe has plans of building like a little alternate reality with flying drones, robots, tunnels, autonomous vehicles, like buying a lot of land and basically using it as a, a breeding and testing ground for an alternative society. So what's going on there in, in Austin in Silicon Hills? Yes. In 2019, we made a decision that we were going to be opening an office sort of off the coast. And I think it's for a variety of reasons. I would say one, you know, from looking at the data in our portfolio, while still the, you know, obviously a clear majority of companies are coming from the Bay or New York, the derivative underlying, you know, 
uh, especially underlying employee growth, where employee growth was located, but even on where companies were based, was shifting pretty, you know, markedly towards what I would call like a democratized set of cities. So it was not like 50 cities, but, you know, it's kind of like, you know, 10 or so. Second thing is, I think that we kind of came to a realization after, you know, trying, you know, with, with no real success to, you know, that San Francisco was not going to be a, a place where we would be able to see things we wanted from a community anytime soon. There's a lot of wonderful things about San Francisco. And this is a comment mostly on San Francisco, not the overall Bay, because the overall Bay is much more heterogeneous. But because we were based in San Francisco and because a lot of the firms that we were investing in work, we felt that, you know, it is important what's happening in San Francisco, because, you know, if you have to commute an hour or two hours in order to, you know, perf perform your work, but also provide your family, you know, the life that you want, that that's, that's a really, it's a very tough thing. And it's a very regressive way to run a society. And so biggest thing for us was the cost of living in San Francisco was just getting that. It was just being very untenable. The, the services provided by the city were in shambles, like just no public, very little public transportation. They were not able to solve the homeless problem despite almost an endless amount of money, which is bad for both folks who aren't homeless and bad for folks who are homeless. I mean, money's not going anywhere productive. And then also public schools, just a absolute travesty as it relates to public schools. I mean, I grew up in Iowa, going to public school where the public schools are great. And, you know, I, the statistic basically, you know, show that the, the teachers in San Francisco are making, you know, only a marginal amount more than teachers in a place like where I grew up in Iowa. It doesn't make any sense at all. Cost of living is like eight times higher in San Francisco. So we made a decision that we wanted to relocate. And then we took a blank slate approach. We knew Austin was the number one, you know, kind of the number one place because we had companies like Qualia and Hearth and Op City and other businesses that were based there, either they had been founded there or they had moved there. But we kind of took a blank slate approach, looked at a bunch of different places, visited a bunch of different ones. And ultimately Austin was the clear choice. And I would say we had high expectations and it has exceeded those expectations. I'm looking forward to visiting at one point in time. But Drew, thanks for being with us here today and taking all this time. We're already 10 minutes over the clock. Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Well, they can check out what we're doing at APC at just apc.com. And that's probably the best place to get a sense for, for what we do. My Perfect. Twitter is Andrew Oding, but I don't tweet very much. I'll leave that to Joe. He can go read yeah, his, that's his, his, <laughs> his insightful and controversial tweets. <laughs> Lots of distraction. Yeah. 